Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Professional. My name is Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we will objectively try and answer the question, can you buy happiness? I'll preface this by saying some of the listeners may find this topic a bit lame or corny, so I do advance, apologize to you all. But if you've been following me over the years, I'm all about no fluff. So it may sound a bit fluffy at times, but I will try to use an evidence-based approach when answering this specific question. The other main thing is I'll discuss about why asking this particular question about money buying happiness is often asked by everyone, but I think it's the wrong question. The question we really should be asking is, does money reduce stress? And this is far more important than does money buy happiness. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic, or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Before we go on to the main topic about money and happiness, I just wanted to do a public service announcement for avid followers of this channel. Number one, Devraga does not sell anything. Number two, Devraga would never sell anything. Number three is, Devraga does not recommend specific financial products. So when you get tagged by someone who says, Devraga recommends or Devraga asked me to contact you about this product, that is immediately a red flag. And yes, it has happened. Now, I know I've become somewhat of a target on social media for scammers who try and use my name to scam you. Here is what I want all of you to do if you get targeted by scammers who use my name to get into your wallet. I don't want you to engage with them. I would like you to universally block them. And, you know, if you really want to troll them, you can, but I just don't think it's worth the time. So the other thing is this podcast also will be renamed My Millennial Money Professional. You may have heard me say this in this episode. More and more non-healthcare workers are eager to listen about finances. And to be honest, a significant proportion of the listeners are from areas other than medicine, nursing, allied health and pharmacy. Fundamentally, the principles of money, investing, debt, saving, budgets, they don't change no matter what profession you are. The scenarios, the concepts and the style of presentation with this episodes, they're not going to change either. Just the title. I found it to be resonating with the majority of audiences that listen, so everything else stays the same except the name, which will be My Millennium Money Professional. Now to the main topic, Does money buy happiness? Now, we need to define happiness, but the short answer to this is happiness is different to different people. So what is happiness and what is the science behind this concept? Happiness is a state of mind where you experience positive emotions and the positive emotions make you happier. Positive emotions are 
pleasure, gratitude, hope, inspiration, etc., etc., all of those will make you more happy. Now, happiness has a bit of a science behind it. It's an experience from day-to-day activities. And if you try too hard to find happiness, it turns out you become less happy and happiness is less attainable. Pursuing happiness through friends and family is likely going to yield more positive results. And if you're more happy, it turns out you become more functional or productive members of society. And if you're more happy and you become more career-focused and have a successful career, this is likely again because you become more functional and productive at work. Now, within happiness, there's a subjective well-being concept. So what is subjective well-being? When it comes to happiness, there are two perspectives, the hedonic perspective and the eudaimonic perspective. Subjective well-being falls under the hedonic perspective, where basically you want to maximise pleasure and minimise pain. The eudaimonic perspective is different. Basically, this is when people talk about being happy within, the inner self. That's way too deep for this podcast episode. And within subjective well-being, there are three things to measure. Number one, life satisfaction. Number two, positive affect. And number three, negative affect. Now, how to measure each of these is beyond the scope of this episode, but I do want to talk about the biggest factor which determines subjective well-being, and that is your personality. Personality comes out on top as being the strongest predictor of subjective well-being. So what sort of personalities or situations are far or less happier subjectively compared to other types of personalities? Well, it turns out that if you're an extrovert, you tend to be more happier The reason being that if you're an extrovert, you tend to look at the positive aspects of life and you experience those a lot more. If you're a neurotic, you tend to be less happier. The reason being, if you're a neurotic, you tend to look at the negative aspects of life and you tend to experience those more. What about optimists versus pessimists? Now, needless to say, optimists are more happier generally. Optimists look at things positively, have more self-control, and tend to have higher self-worth and self-esteem, and all of these parameters leads to more happiness. Social networking, not the online version. It turns out if you socialise more in real life, have more real-life connections with friends or family, your life tends to be more happier, and you tend to have more life satisfaction. Employment. People who are employed and have a job are more likely to be happier in life compared to unemployed people. Further breaking this down, people who are employed, if they're doing more connected work, more meaningful work for society, then they're more happier. Based on this, it's likely that healthcare workers, as miserable as it can be at one time, are likely to be happy overall compared to perhaps a hedge fund manager who's always counting the dollars and cents. Very subjective, of course. Companions, people who are married or have a companion or in a relationship, tend to be happier because they have a companion. But if a marriage is terrible, then it's misery that follows. Marriage or relationships is a double-edged sword, and you really need to pick the right sort to be happy. Stating the obvious. Leisure and activity. Now, interestingly, this is not really an independent predictor of being happy. Just because you exercise and do more leisurely activities and lead a very active lifestyle doesn't actually independently make you happier. But if you do so on a social gathering or network style, then it has a bearing on happiness. It has an effect. Now this, I was actually quite surprised by this. And I do wonder if there's any newer evidence to suggest otherwise. Having said that, exercise is good for you. 
not exercising is not likely to make you any less happier. So exercise has a lot of benefits. So if you are exercising, yes, there's no independent predictor that you're going to be more happier in life, but it's got a lot of other positive things. So there may be secondary positive add-ons that might make you happier. So overall, I think exercise anecdotally is probably a good thing. What is happiness versus pleasure versus joy versus ecstasy? Is it all the same? They're not all the same thing. Happiness is more of a state of mind, which can be a longer term thing. Whereas joy, pleasure, ecstasy is more of a single event concept. So you may experience pleasure doing something, but overall it may not increase your state of happiness. Now we are splitting hairs here, but I think it's important to understand this concepts in full. So what is happiness versus meaning then? Happiness does not equal to a meaningful life and vice versa. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a nurse and has two children, aged three and five. She's married to her husband, Rob. They live in a modest family home. Despite having a pretty good life, safe, secure home, and never having to worry about money, they didn't score well in the happiness index. One of the standout features was they had a very meaningful life because of their children. Now, children are an interesting situation. Many parents love having children. They plan for them, despite generally people with children scoring badly in the happiness scores. But many of them score a very high score for a meaningful life. Having said this, happiness and meaningful life feed off one another. If you do something meaningful repeatedly, then it can make you happier in the long term. And this is why people with children often score higher happiness scores later in life rather than early in their parenthood. And there's a number of factors we can go into here, including lack of sleep early in your parenthood, but it's beyond the scope of this episode. If you're poor or have a low net worth, you could lead a very meaningful life, but you may not be happy at the same time. You may be miserable. Now, I see these concepts of meaningful life and happiness in the FIRE community a lot. Happiness and meaningful life, you know, they're different. So ensure you try and achieve both in your FIRE journey, not just one or the other. What are some of the important factors which are associated with happiness? There's quite a few. Number one, income. Number two, labour market status. Number three, physical health. Number four, mental health. Number five, moral values. Number six, relationships. Number seven, family well-being. Number eight, experiences which are more positive. Now, is happiness a learned trait? Have you noticed that there are some people who are subjectively more happier than others practically all the time. How is that possible? Is there a genetic component to it? The short answer is the genetic component is important. In 2016, they linked it to a specific gene called HTTLPR, but they also found it's also environmental and can be a learned trait. So happiness can be genetic, but also can be environmental. Now, as we discussed before, your personality, your income, your physical health, your mental health, They can all play a key factor in your happiness. So you can do some things and learn to be happy in life. And lastly, what's the evidence behind happiness and how does it improve one's life? The World Economic Forum has published multiple reports on this. They used the happiness index called the Centrile Ladder. What they found was when they compared GDP PPP between countries, that is, when the GDP PPP rises between countries, there is a strong relationship at the lower ends of spectrum. Then it tends to plateau out on richer countries. But there are definitely outliers, which is why it's not an easy discussion. 
they found that poor countries, like in Latin America, tended to have higher happiness scores compared to richer Middle Eastern countries, which tended to have lower levels of happiness scores. And this goes to show that money is just one factor in having a happy life, but there is much more to it than meets the eye. Now, I hope that was useful and that was the fluffy lovey-dovey bit, but hopefully it resonates with a lot of our listeners. I just wanted to put it out, the main concepts out there between happiness, meaning and subjective well-being. We'll take a short break and when we come back, I will address specifically about money and happiness and talk about the data behind it all. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now, welcome back. So the question of can money buy happiness? And that's what we're trying to answer in this episode. We instantly think about the life of luxury, the flashy cars, the big homes, the luxury holidays. Do all of these things make you happy? We know what happiness is, and it can differ between people and the differences between happiness and we know the meaningful life, etc., etc. What money does is it buys your way of unforeseen road bumps in your life. So I think the question shouldn't be, can money buy happiness, but rather, can money set us free from life's worries or can money reduce stress? I think this is a very different question, and I think it's very relevant, and it's possibly more meaningful. Money can reduce worries in all levels of wealth, not just in people who are relatively poor. In 2019, a study survey done by the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, this is a US-based study, showed that one in four Americans faced financial scarcity. In a University of South Australia report of Australians aged greater than 55 years showed 31% were insecure about their personal finances. So the theme in Australia is also likely the same. And this was published in 2022, so it's very relevant to today. So what's the evidence? The University of Southern California and the Grugogen University and Columbia Business School, they combined and conducted a series of surveys and experiments, and they published their findings in the Journal of Social, Psychological and Personality Science titled, The Sharp Spikes in Poverty, Financial Scarcity is Related to Higher Levels of Distress, Intensity in Daily Lives. And I'll put the link in the show notes, um, which is a very interesting study, uh, quite a hefty read if you're interested. 
One of their experiments was they had 522 participants that kept a 30-day diary and they tracked their daily events and their emotional responses to them. And the income of participants ranged from $10,000 per annum to $150,000 per annum. This is what they found. They found that money reduces intense stress. Surprisingly, there wasn't any significant differences in the number of distressing events people experienced based on their annual income levels. They recorded a similar number of distressing events. But when they measured the intensity of those distressing events, they noted that people with higher incomes had lower levels of intensity. I found that really interesting. So the person that has a higher income and a higher net worth had similar number of distressing events than the person that doesn't have an higher income and doesn't have a high net worth. But the amount of distress, the amount of intensity that it caused was the difference. They also found that more money brings greater control. Those with higher incomes felt they had greater control over the distressing event when compared to people on lower incomes. And this meant it also reduced their intensity of the distressing event. People in higher incomes felt they had more agency with their money to quickly control the distressing event to manageable levels. Number three is higher incomes meant higher life satisfaction. This was interesting. This is probably as close as it gets to money buying happiness. And indeed, people have had higher levels of income were more satisfied with various amounts of their life, depending on their income. So the take-home message in addition to all of this is rich people also have problems. And it's not as if they don't have problems, but when they do, such as a flat tyre, car breakdowns, home maintenance, you know, when those things happen, their stressors are less because they have money to reduce those stressors. In another one of their experiments, they had 400 participants that were presented with daily dilemmas. And some of the daily dilemmas are finding time to cook meals, getting around if there isn't any public transportation, or perhaps trying to work from home in a small apartment. And they asked participants two ways to solve these problems. The first way is to use money to solve their problems. And the second way is to ask family and friends to help with their daily dilemmas. This is what they found. Both rich and poor people lean on family and friends for help. There was not much difference in this, which I found really surprising. But people with money would often turn to money as a problem solver. For example, if they didn't have time to cook, they're more likely to buy takeout meals compared to people without much money. So the frequency in which higher income people turn to money to solve their problems was higher when compared to people with lower incomes. Now, these are not unexpected findings, and that is that rich people use money to solve their problems more than poor people. What is striking is money does solve problems, and solving problems reduces stress. The other byproduct of all this is poor people tend to have strained social relationships because they keep asking for help from family and friends, not because they want to, it's because they have to. And that's not conducive for those people to run their own lives. That is, the friends and family that are always being asked for help. So what's the relationship between money and shame? In a journal article in Organisational Behaviour and Human Decision Making, Jackie Kamich, which I think that's how you pronounce it, and colleagues, found people who experience financial difficulties experience more shame when compared to people who don't experience any financial difficulties. And the problem with this is, if you experience shame, you're more likely not to address the issues associated with it, more likely to avoid problems, and this makes the financial difficulties even worse. It's a cycle which leads to potentially more shame. And this is called the shame spirals. The perception is that that created that people with money problems have only themselves to blame. And this is a real problem in society. 
The reality is people with money problems may have structural obstruction to solving their money problems. And this includes environmental, social, ethnicity-based, race-based, and societal factors which impact their ability to raise their income. Have you ever noticed that things get cheaper when you get wealthier? Think about it this way. People with large amounts of debt, they get it because they usually have a reasonably high income. This means that they have the power now to negotiate better deals with their banks and mortgage lenders compared to average income earners. This is just one example of how higher income people can leverage their income and net worth and wealth to negotiate harder. I'm no saint. I do this all the time. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a factory worker who works a full-time job. Her hourly wage is around $30 per hour, which is pretty good. Her monthly after-tax income is $4,000. And at the time of recording this episode, which is late 2022 in December, factory work is currently in high demand, especially in these low labour market situations and high inflationary times. After rent, expenses for the home, utilities, children's expenses, she has very little money left over. She has not reached a stage where she's able to pay herself first. The problem for her now is to get to work. She needs enough money to put fuel in the car. Fuel prices are still quite expensive. She looks for public transport. And it turns out she lives in an area where public transport is far away. The nearest train station is 10 minutes drive and buying public transport tickets works out expensive as well. So society has structured a system for Amy where for her to get to work and to earn a living is actually really expensive. This is a deeply ingrained problem. And as a result of all this, Amy is likely unable to get to work regularly or has to spend a significant proportion of her income to pay for expenses to get to work. And she feels she can't get ahead in life from a personal finance perspective. Now, you may be listening to this episode from one of the capital cities in Australia and have a look around where you live and have a look around the demographics and the suburbs that are in your city. You may find that in more wealthier suburbs, there's more access to healthcare. There's more access to public transportation. There's more access to road networks. Now, I live in Melbourne and this is very true. So it's really ironic that the people that need to improve their income, that need to better their lives, often have to spend a significant proportion of their income in order to do that. So as fair as we are as a society, there are some ingrained obstructions in society which almost prevent or make it significantly harder for people to make more money and get out of that poverty cycle. Now, in terms of, you know, obstructions to accessing income or making more income or even seeking healthcare, I have to be humble and explain I wasn't a saint either. I didn't realise this during my junior doctor years. And you can often be blinded about this when dealing with patients. Let me give you a real life example from my own experience. And I say this because as healthcare workers, we are dealing with people at their most vulnerable times. So please keep this in mind when dealing with your patients. I was a surgical registrar and it was absolutely annoying me that some patients just wouldn't turn up to their post-operative appointment. And I was lucky enough to get into surgery at a very young age, in my 20s. On a superficial nature, what we write on a medical record when a patient doesn't come to their appointment, particularly the outpatients, is we write fail to attend or FTA. We've all done this. The term FTA or fail to attend has a real negative connotation to it. It appears as if the patient couldn't be bothered to attend. 
This is similar to writing refused clinical care as opposed to declined clinical care. Patient refused to do this. Nurse refused to do this. We've all done it. We've all been in the situation. And some of our listeners may still be in this situation. Of course, some patients don't attend because they can't be bothered. But there are other reasons also. Let's look at some of the reasons why and have they studied this phenomenon? And the answer is yes, they have. In a family medicine journal, they conducted a survey of patients as to why this is a problem. 675 patients missed their appointments, so called FTAs. This was over a three-month period, and they conducted a telephone survey of these patients after they missed their appointments. And of these patients, 218 attended their survey. And of these, 37% reported forgetting their appointments. But almost 30% reported unable to attend due to one of three or four factors, and they are transportation issues, personal issues, or there are other issues impacting attendance. That's 30% of the people that they surveyed said they couldn't come to an appointment, not because they didn't want to or they forgot, it's because they simply couldn't due to other factors. Anyhow, after my surgical rotations, I noticed some odd things about the car parking at major hospitals. How's that related? Well, I trained at some of Melbourne's so-called prestigious hospital networks, Car parking was outrageously expensive, so patients had to sometimes pay $25 to $50 just to park their car. And if they had to park their car to attend the appointments, that's a barrier right there. And unfortunately, a lot of the public hospitals don't have very easy public transport access. You have to either catch a train and then swap over to a tram, or catch a tram and swap over to a bus, or just catch a bus. Now, strategically, if you've gone to any of the larger public hospitals uh, around Melbourne, for example, the council has no parking or limited parking options in the surrounding streets of the hospitals. And they tend to fine people for parking too long or parking in the wrong spot. Remembering, these are often patients who are only trying to seek healthcare. And healthcare, in my view, is a human right. It seems they're facing the same obstruction that we've always had to healthcare. Just to get to the hospital or to get to the clinic appointment, you need to almost have, you know, anywhere between $10 to $50. Now, what's interesting is when I was a junior resident at one of the largest tertiary institutions uh, in Melbourne, even I couldn't afford parking or couldn't actually get parking, scrap that afford, I could technically afford it, but I couldn't get parking because by the time my shift started, all the car parking spaces would be full. So I was forced to park on the side streets of this large tertiary institution in the city. And of course, what happens is my shift finishes at 8am in the morning when I was doing a night shift, but the car parking finishes at 7am. Then I remember vividly that I had to get out of the hospital, go move my car between the hours of 7 and 8am so that I don't get a fine. I had to do that as a junior resident. And if you're listening and if you're working in one of the bigger hospitals, you may still have to do that just to get to work and do your shift. Now, I just don't get it. Why are we making it harder for patients and doctors and nurses to seek or attend healthcare? If they don't seek healthcare, they may get worse. And when they do get worse, then they seek healthcare, then it's likely their condition is worse. And guess what? The cost to the healthcare system is far greater. Some of the things have been really punitive. So I suspect there's some element of capitalism at play here, Because most of the car parking that's been uh, to public hospitals uh, around Melbourne, of course, is outsourced to private companies, who, in my view, seem to run a racket when it comes to some of these hospital networks. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is money buys control. That's all there is to it. 
And with that control, you can use it to reduce your stress levels. So in conclusion, does money buy happiness? Well, yes. It does reduce stresses. Yes. It makes day-to-day living easier for those that have money. Yes. So the question is, how much money do you need to earn until your happiness starts to plateau? In 2010, Princeton University did that famous study which concluded you need around 75,000 US dollars to feel happy and everything after that doesn't add that much more happiness. It starts to plateau. In 2021, this was revisited. The Wharton School of Business concluded actually there is no plateau. They looked at 33,000 people and took various snapshots of their lives and they found that if they measured forms of well-being, it continued to rise with higher levels of income. They didn't see the same plateau as what they saw in the Princeton study. More importantly, what they found was people went happier because they had nice food and went on nice holidays or drove fancier cars. What they found that it was more than that. People were generally more happier because money brought options. Money brought a sense of control, which meant they weren't overly constrained due to their limited resources. Again, the correlation with money and happiness was that money reduces constraints and money reduces stressors. Now, there is a flip side to this. What the Wharton study also showed was the people who are less happy in life often talked about money a lot more. This is slightly embarrassing for me because I actually like talking about money and I'm actually quite happy, I think. So, studies are studies. It's not across the board. That's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using. I'll leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review because it goes a long way into showing your appreciation, but also telling other people that this channel is worth listening to. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So please keep them coming. My name's Dev Raga from My Millennium Money Professional. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.